Good day, listeners. This is your host, Michael Martins, with the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting this morning from a rare, nearly smoke-free day here in West Kelowna, British Columbia. In today's program, we continue our series on the conservation of humanity, continue our exploration of the Wuhan flu COVID-19 scandemic. We will be dissecting the pack of lies which have been peddled globally by public health agencies, governments, the mainstream media, and the mainstream medical community. Joining us today is Dr. Paul Elias Alexander. Dr. Alexander received his bachelor's degree in epidemiology from McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, a master's degree from Oxford University, and a PhD from McMaster University's Department of Health, Research Methods, Evidence, and Impact. Dr. Alexander has expertise in teaching clinical epidemiology, evidence-based medicine, and research methodology. He's a former professor at McMaster University in evidence-based medicine, former COVID pandemic advisor to Hu Paho in Washington, D.C., and a former senior advisor on COVID pandemic policy at the U.S. government's Department of Health and Human Services. Presently, Dr. Alexander is an independent academic scientist and consultant. Dr. Alexander, thank you so much for your time today. It's a tremendous honor to be able to speak with you. I'd like to thank you for your tireless and courageous efforts to promote real science and evidence-based medicine in opposition to the endless mainstream narrative of fear and scientism. So, perhaps we could begin today uh, with you elaborating on your lengthy list of credentials and experience within the medical field. Well, first of all, um, thanks very much, sir, for having me on your show. And um, the reality about it is it's not that we're trying to elaborate on the evidence or the science. The question is, we have evidence and science available, but the problem is it's not being relayed to the public in an accurate or truthful manner. And the public is not being informed. So my, uh, particularly by our public health agencies, and that's a shame because the public health agencies like the CDC in the United States is supposedly the marquee public health agency in the world. And um, I wanted to remain that way and to, to become that way again. Uh, between the last couple of years, what is coming out of the CDC is, in my view, pseudoscience and um, at times just junk, pure junk garbage. Anyway, let me get straight to the point. I don't pretend to be more expertized than anyone. Um, I had a good fortune of doing clinical epidemiology at the University of Toronto. I did uh, studies at Oxford in evidence-based medicine. And I schooled under the top evidence-based medicine people in the world at Oxford. They were one of the founders of this area. Then I went on to McMaster and did my doctorate in evidence-based medicine under Dr. Gordon Guyatt. Dr. Guyatt is the founder of evidence-based medicine, that term, evidence-based medicine, um, out of Canada. And um, uh, that unit that I belong to, of probably the, the top, the, the 10 top research methodologists in the world, uh, we had six of them there, um, including mm-hmm. Dr. Guyatt, Dr. Sackett, Dr. Salim Youssef, Dr. Um, Devereaux, et cetera. So Brian Haynes, Top, top people. And um, our focus has been on research methodology, anything to do with methods, anything to do with evidence-based medicine. And um, I had germane to this discussion um, uh, in about mid of 2019, I got a consultancy at WHO Geneva and Paho, DC, Washington, where they asked me to help them develop um, some evidence-based source of training for low and middle income countries. So I was doing that. And then around January, February, when we were beginning to get 
the, um, the initial reports out of Italy and China about this, this respiratory uh, condition and the reports of the deaths and all this drama. Um, WHO PAHO asked me to pivot in my role uh, because they were a little thin on evidence-based medicine people, persons with the ability to, to look at large amounts of information and to synthesize it uh, in a very cogent manner that, that they could relate to the public or to, to whomever. And um, so I, I functioned as a consultant for WHO PAHO as their evidence-based um, person initially in, for COVID uh, globally. So I was working out of Toronto at that point, although I had got my residency for the United States and I was moving back, we, we were moving gradually to the US. So um, at that point, when I was doing this position at WHO, early in uh, January, February, um, it was everything to do with, with COVID. Just trying to get an understanding of this issue, wrap our arms around it, and to message out to the rest of the world, particularly um, in terms of whatever was available. It became clear to me at that point, February, March, that all of the research and everything coming out of the world the research community the journals was just pure garbage, junk. It was low methodological quality. And I don't know if it's a combination of a lot of these researchers and academic institutions were just running after the grant money, but they were putting out garbage and we couldn't make any sense of what they were saying. There was no real quality in the science. And I began writing about it. And about that time around uh, mid-April to the beginning of May, the beginning of May, 2020, was doing this position, I got a, a call. Um, one day, my wife took the call and she said, well, you know, uh, there's somebody talking about Washington, White House, coming to DC to work and uh, to, to play a role in health and human services, to support the task force behind the scenes, blah, 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 blah. I thought it was a joke, to be honest with you. I thought someone was punking me because I, 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 I come from the islands I mean, I have these credentials and stuff, but I, you know, I'm, I'm a nobody when I, when I thought about it. But no, you know, I got into a conversation. They told me we'd like you to beat us to the border in a couple of days because the borders were shut. And I, it was like a movie. I went there, my family. I was met there. I was vetted there. I was taken into Buffalo to further meetings. And uh, from there, I went to DC. And um, I worked in Washington. Uh, in Health and Human Services under the Trump administration. And um, I had the good fortune of meeting a lot of good people and working. Um, I had a lot of problems in the beginning, and I think I've, I've shared this somewhat, but I don't want to go into too much detail, but the, the bureaucracy, it became known right away, was very adverse to my, uh, to my role. And it was told to me at the highest levels of government that, that the bureaucracy is working behind the scenes to to, um, to stymie my hire and to uh, not complete so that, you know, like I am a very green person in terms of Washington and DC and, and I love the United States. So I was kind of fascinated by everything. It was just like a blur. But what I did get from them was that they're not going to finally hire you so that you're going to be frustrated. They will give you no paperwork. And one of these days that you come to the HHS building, you might just walk away and say, to hell's with this and go back to where you came from. So they're gonna frustrate you. 
And I, in my mind, I, I said, well, you know, I didn't understand this because <clears throat> here we have this international problem. Here I was working at WHO Powerful. Here you call me to DC because of my skills and expertise, <clears throat> et cetera. And I actually, my green card to the United States was not a typical green card. Uh, my green card was a highly specialized area for persons with uh, doctorate degrees who bring a skill to the United States that the United States government assessed me for three years and felt that it was in short supply, so niche in America that I could benefit America. And I was given residency to America after three years assessment, very rigorous scientific assessment, because I didn't have a sponsor. I, I applied on my own. So I knew that I was bringing particularly high level skills and in my mind, it confused me. Why would the bureaucracy uh, try to frustrate me for me to walk away? And it was explained to me, well, you know, you're working for the Trump administration. Anyone to do anything with the Trump administration is um, persona non grata. So I told myself, well, if that is the key, that's the issue, <clears throat> I'm going to hold on because I love America. I wanted to help. I had these skills. My skills was in this area. I was already very seasoned in COVID because of the high level work I was doing for WHO. I wasn't someone clerical level or even a, one of those bench scientists who are knocking around there talking about COVID. I was actually at an at informing director general at WHO on that level. So I knew that I was running on the floor and um, I could make a serious contribution. Then it was explained to me that it seems that you're not going to retire, you're not going to quit. So now they've decided, you know, we think they're not going to pay you. So I told us, what do you mean they're not going to pay me? And I've been there a few months. Well, you're not going to get paid. And uh, I said, but how could you not pay me? Uh, you know, I've been here. I moved my family here. I've, I've rented a, a place in Washington, D.C., which is very expensive. And they said, yeah, well, they, they, they're going to try and frustrate you, we explained. <clears throat> so you would leave. And I made up my mind, I'm not going to quit. I'm going to try and ride it out um, and uh, support the United States, the evidence-based field in the entire world, if I could, in any which way I could, in my small way. So I told my wife, you know, it's easy for us to just leave and, and we could finish our final little place in the United States and we go on to live with our lives because that was my intent because I was a resident. And just leave D.C. because... <clears throat> This is a horrible place if you if you've not lived there before and you bump up against the bureaucracy, particularly the media. And uh, it was explained to me over and over, you know, Paul, um, whatever you contribute here, if you decide to stay, you know you are a target and they are going to smear and slander you on your unit and HHS. And they will do everything to destroy you. They will write things about you. I said, but... I don't know anybody here. Why would they do that? They said, that's not how it works. You are working for the Trump administration, so you have been marked for destruction. They're going to destroy your name and do everything that they can. And I said, well, you know, uh, uh, I will try my best to do the best that I could. And um, <clears throat> hopefully that wouldn't materialize. But that materialized. Long and short of it is I departed in September. And um, I know the election occurred. Uh, the reality is since then, well, I've been a proponent of early outpatient treatment, which is the use of um, antiviral drugs that are available, safe, effective, cheap, 
and that because we figured out that patients' lives were being saved. So I was pushing that. I joined several groups internationally, research groups we've been publishing, um, writing a lot of op-eds, and I'm still very, very thick in the COVID, uh, the COVID area internationally. A lot of these groups, like a lot of scientists I work with, we are not being paid. We are doing this um, out of you know our own advocacy, and we are trying to help in a very difficult situation, principally because we are faced, we think, and I think, with one of the gravest, most serious public health disasters ever, and that's these vaccines, and particularly as it pertains to children. Um, my argument with others have been, we're going to discuss the adverse events and the deaths and where this vaccine has been rolled out and the, the, um, all of the issues separately. But when it comes to children, given their almost zero statistical zero risk of being infected and, and getting severely ill in the first place, um, given the problems with the vaccine, this vaccine offers them no opportunity for benefit only potential opportunities for harms. So I see no basis for it. And I have been calling on President Trump. I've been seeing it openly. I've been writing it. That he has to, because these vaccines were developed under him, he has to come forward and make a statement that do not use these vaccines on children because they have not been tested properly. We have no long-term safety data on them. And moreover, You'd be giving children who are at low risk, who would brush up against COVID if they do and recover very well and have long, long lasting lifetime, natural exposure immunity, which is robust, durable, um, will probably last them a lifetime much more effective than a very narrow spike specific vaccine induced immunity, which we are seeing already that with the current Delta variant, is blowing past the immunity because it's as though you have no immunity given, I, I think the vaccines were suboptimally developed. I, I can't understand vaccine experts sitting down in a room somewhere coming up with a design to design this vaccine just based on one protein off of the viral ball with a few binding sites for the immune system. It makes absolutely no sense. And we are seeing now the results of this. It is, it is, you could say this is a failure because the vaccine is just not working. It is not working. Uh, in Israel, they have started the third booster shots and we've already seen infections with the third shots. People are being hospitalized. So that means it's not working. And people need to understand that. So back to the kids, parents need to ask them a simple question. If my child has no risk of severe illness, no serious risk of death from COVID-19. This, this is the data. This is settled, clear, unequivocal data across the entire world. There's no question about this. When the CDC director came onto the news recently, a few months ago and said, well, we are now understanding the data better and more data has accumulated. That was being duplicitous on her part. CDC has had the data well over a year. Children are at absolute near zero risk of illness from this virus and, and the condition. Children do not readily spread this virus to other children. The data is absolutely clear 
and unshakable. Children do not spread this virus to adults. When a child gets this virus, it is often always a home cluster from adult to child. Children do not spread it to teachers. In fact, the school is the most safest place for a child and a teacher in America. The median mean age of a teacher is 41 years old. A, a healthy median age, 41 year old average age person is a very good health situation. The children should have never been locked out of school. That was a catastrophic failure. That unholy alliance between the CDC and the teachers unions is a complete mess and it has hurt our children. We were getting reports in the government while I, while I was there where business owners were killing themselves because of the lockdowns, not the disease. Employees from those businesses that were closed were, were, were self-harming. A lot of abuse was taking place in the homes and were killing themselves. We were getting reports that children were killing themselves and self-harming across America. And it frightened Porter Trump. And you could see the push by him constantly on the podium, begging the states to open, begging the schools to open. So it was a bit, people would look at the situation on the podium and think it was a very seamless thing. But he was actually fighting with his own task force because from my point of view, they were averse to his ideology, which I supported in terms of, <clears throat> we do not keep the society locked down. There is no, Martins, there is no evidence. And I looked at this with the team I'm working with. We looked at all of the evidence globally since March of 2020 up to today. We're now completing an op-ed. We've looked at every piece of evidence in every setting in every country that enacted any form of lockdown. And there is no evidence that any of them reduced transmission or reduced death. All the lockdowns were failures, every single one, absolutely clear evidence. We looked at all of the evidence on school closures. Every single school closure was a failure. None resulted in reduction of spread or deaths. In fact, closing schools was a catastrophe because you move children out of the safest place for them. The school remained, children got their, almost many got their first meals, their only meal in school. They got their ears, uh, tested, their eyes tested, uh, uh, issues around home abuse and sexual abuse is brought to the school setting, flagged for the first time. Many children suffered as a consequence of closing of the schools. We looked at all of the evidence in terms of masking and mask mandates, and we could find not one state in America, not one nation in the entire world, and I'm speaking as clear as I could here, we look to the evidence. There is no evidence to support mass mandates anywhere in this entire world, entire. There's no evidence to support the effectiveness of these blue surgical masks that everyone walks around with and these white cloth masks. Our total, our look at the entire evidence, we looked at all of their comparative effectiveness research and it is very limited. But we have some good studies, the Danish mass study that, that, that the journals tried not to publish. That is probably the top uh, study that we have, uh, which shows the ineffectiveness of the mass. When you look at the study out of Sweden by Ludvigsen, New England Journal, 
they looked at 2 million sweet kids, all of the kids 16 years old and below. They followed them for the duration of the, of the pandemic. No school closures, no mass mandates. There were zero instances of death, zero. When you look at the French Alps study, where this one child moved around to about three different schools in mid-2020 and exposed symptomatic positive child, exposed teachers, well over 100 contacts. We found no evidence, zero of secondary spread. So we have the evidence. We look at the Marine Paris Island study. This was a study of marine recruits. And uh, we looked at, they were, they were quarantined prior to, to admission to Paris Island to, for the training and even on the training with the strongest, most rigorous uh, military officers overseeing them. And what did that study also show? That study actually showed us that social distancing does not work. And it also showed us the failures of masking. So we have studies. We have the CDC published in around May 2020. They looked at the issue of mask use for respiratory conditions. Uh, and they found the masks are ineffective. So, so anyone who comes and talks about these masks and stuff is just pure garbage. Let me explain to you. I'm putting my evidence-based medicine background on the table. The blue surgical masks and the white masks are highly ineffective, period. You could try and fudge it. You could talk around it. You may look nice wearing it. You may feel confident. They do not work, period. So we've looked at everything that the governments have done, these United States task force with Fauci and Burks and these people. Each policy that they enacted was a complete failure, absolute failure. None of them were zero. And we are in a condition today because of those policies. And there's something else, Martins, that the public needs to understand. Very early out of the box, CDC decided that it was going to produce a diagnostic test. And we had available tests. I believe there was one in WHO that was quite effective at that point. But CDC produced a test that was going to be shocked out to the commercial lab, etc. We, Dr. Alexander, we've lost your audio. What the American people do not know is this. The, the nation flew blind for about five weeks. And Dr. Redfield recently in a CNN interview with Sanjay Gupta stated it. And I was surprised that he was that honest. For five weeks, we did no testing in America. And it was those five weeks in March and April that the virus seeded across the eastern and western coast of America. And I can tell you, we are still digging out today. We have still, we have suffered the ramifications of that failed botched CDC test. It was a complete failure. It was contaminated and all testing had to stop until the FDA and the CDC understood what went wrong. But the key point is those five weeks pause. Uh, uh, we, we did not know anything about the virus because of that failure. We, we were blinded. Other countries, third world, third world, very underdeveloped countries were way ahead of us with testing while we were blinded for five weeks. And if you look at the major, major missteps and catastrophes, that botched testing in CDC is one. The idea of asymptomatic spread being a prominent issue in this 
pandemic, that's a complete bunk. That is garbage. Asymptomatic spread is not a driver, was not a driver of this pandemic. That was used to help shut down this society and close it and frighten people. And you had 20-year-old Johnny, who was at the prime of his life, healthy, hiding below his mother's bed, clutching his teddy bear, thinking that he was at the same risk as his 90-year-old grandmother, who had four grave underlying conditions. And today, August 2021, Johnny still can't understand that he's healthy, he's fine, he's going to have no problem with the Delta. Johnny is still hiding below his mother's bed because of what Fauci and Burks told him in March and April 2020. That message, that message was a complete duplicitous message. We were never, ever at equal risk. Never. We knew early on that COVID was amenable to risk stratification that if we took an age risk approach, we could target treatment. We could target the control measures effectively, but we didn't do that. We implemented a carte blanche approach that suffered the society, shut things down, destroyed businesses, and caused people to harm themselves and commit suicide. Many people died in America and across this world, many thousands, hundreds of thousands, not because of COVID, it was because of the policies enacted by the governments. We knew the issue of recurrent infection was a lie, reinfection, a complete lie. Today, we cannot find in the entire world, in the entire world, all of the evidence we've looked at, one clear-cut example where person A was infected with COVID, cleared it, recovered, and then got reinfected again. We cannot find that evidence. That is supposition. That does not exist. The issue that there was no early treatment, that was another lie that hobbled this pandemic. We had early outpatient treatment day one, and they knew it. The CDC knew, the NIH knew, the FDA knew. They knew hydroxychloroquine. They knew doxycycline. They knew ivermectin. They knew the corticosteroids work. It, intuitively, intuitively, like HIV and hepatitis C, et cetera, you throw these antivirals at these uh, illnesses, these viruses, very early on in the replication stage, and you could arrest it. You could disturb it enough. So we knew this, yet we denied the use of early outpatient treatment in lieu of these vaccines. So you had societies locking down, uninformed. They didn't realize that by locking down, you're denying your population, the well in your society. You're denying the healthy people in your society from living a normal life, getting infected naturally as part of day-to-day -day living, and you are healthy and well, you would become immune. And it is you who we use disease after disease to protect the vulnerable. But we turn things upside down. In, in fact, we lock the healthy down, and we still fail to protect the elderly. And, and that protect the elderly is another important point. Most of the deaths that occurred in the United States and Canada and Britain occurred in these old age homes, these nursing homes, these long-term facilities. Why? Because we knew that the staff was bringing the infection into the homes, but the homes refused. They refused and they failed to properly sanction or control the staff and to implement measures that would have saved lives. Thousands of people died needlessly needlessly. When I was at the HHS, 
I was in discussions and I've told them, I told them early, sensibly, you need to stop the staff from entering the home. You need to take whatever actions you can. There, there were many options available. So, you know, Martins, the reality about it is we could talk on and on, on and on for years to come for the disasters that these people have done. But right now, we're faced with a crisis. We have a vaccine that seems to be problematic. But, and, and the push now is to vaccinate children when the children do, do not bring the risk to the table that warrants the use of these vaccines. Dr. Fauci, Dr. Walensky, Dr. Collins, nobody, the Surgeon General Murthy, nobody has, came, has come to the nation, even under the Trump administration, and made the case. They have not prosecuted the case as to why a child should be vaccinated with these vaccines. They have failed to do that because they cannot. The evidence does not support the use of these vaccines in a child who has near zero risk of becoming ill in the first place. It is an absolute lie to say that we need to vaccinate our children to get to population level immunity. For you to do that, that's what Fauci said, we need children vaccinated in the mix so we could drive herd immunity. For him to say that, it means that he needs to deny the existence of, of prior coronavirus infections where children are already immune. And that's in the society also. He needs to deny the immunity that people have retained from prior exposure and recovery. So it's a lot of nonsense coming out from these high-level um, high public health experts. You would have thought better. They have confused the nation. They have denied science. And they are talking science that really does not exist. So you could talk. I know you're an expert in this area, too. I can talk. We all could talk. But we have urgencies. And the urgency is how to stop these vaccines from being administered to our children, period. And that's how I open. Well, that's, uh, that's a... Uh... Very powerful statements you've made there, sir. Um, I guess one of the questions that, that springs to mind, I have to ask, given ev all this evidence and the mounting evidence and the continually mounting evidence, why do the public health agencies continue to push the narrative uh, in, in uh, opposition to everything that you've stated in terms of the asymptomatic spread, the masking, the vaccine requirements. And, you know, here here in Canada, we have these shameful politicians that it almost seems like a competition amongst them to who can come up with the most draconian, tyrannical uh, vaccine mandatory uh, mandates and mandatory vaccinations. You know, we have uh, Jagmeet Singh trying to outdo uh, Mr. Dressup. And Mr. Dressup now is, you know, threatening. I mean, he's threatening the nation. Do as I say, or there's going to be consequences. I mean, it's 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 ridiculous. And I remember there was a, a time uh, early on in, in Mr. Dressup's uh, tenure there where there was a boxing match between him and one of the uh, members of parliament. And I, and I would love the opportunity to step in the ring with that guy and, and uh, knock him around. But I'll put it over to you. I mean, it, and as well, the other part of that question would be, we definitely saw uh, President Trump early on saying we're going to get back to back to normal by Easter. This is a flu. And there was a definitive direction that he was taking. And somewhere along the line, you know, as uh, Dr. Zelenko has recently stated, it sure seemed like somebody tapped him on the shoulder and said, look, this is what we're doing. We'll put some money in an account for you. And if you don't obey, we will get rid of you and your family. So 
you know, what is the, you know, what did you see in DC? I mean, obviously it sounds like you were a pariah um, for being on the wrong team and that everything was in opposition to the truth. You know, I, I'll throw it over to you. What, what do you, what are your thoughts there? What are we seeing? Well, well, you know, first of all, you know, we operate in a political vacuum right now. All of this is politics. I, I have argued with people that this move from being a public health response very early on to being a political response. How could it not be when right out of the gate, you had China denying that this had human-to-human -human transmission? And right away, you had WHO in February, March, April saying, oh, yeah, we agree, no human-to-human -human transmission. You had Fauci coming on the news in America. And when Fauci and these people speak, they really speak to the world because the world looks at America. America sets the tone. So when he came on and he said, yeah, we Americans have nothing to worry about with this. You don't even need masks, et cetera. So they were all playing politics in my, from my point of view. They were not looking at this uh, as a public health issue and a public health response. The challenge was, was that someone like Trump, uh, from my own, what I will comment on is this. Uh, a good human being, a good person, love his country, and I believe, honestly, in my heart, wanted to do the best for everyone and try. I think, I think there was a failure in terms of the people that he appointed around him, that their jobs was to be the most well-informed, to give him the best decision that he makes the most optimal decision. But if you were giving him suboptimal information and information that is screwing him up, of course, his decisions would run counter to what it should have been. So, for example, when they said uh, to lock the society down, one could argue that maybe the first two weeks we, we, we put a pause on things to wrap our arms around things. But we knew quickly who the high-risk groups were in Canada, in the United States, in Britain. We knew quickly how to manage this, very, very quickly. So the idea to keep the societies locked down, even harden the lockdowns and prolong them, was, was uninformed, it was illogical, nonsensical, it was absurd. There was no scientific basis. We never did that before. Never, never, ever. And uh, what I saw taking place in Canada was very frightening over the year, um, especially in places like Quebec, etc. And it seems that Canadians who really stood apart from the rest of the world as some of the most precious people, the best people, Canadians, um, something happened in this COVID, and I think between the government and the media, they uh, collectively worked on the psyche of the Canadian people, and they turned them into like enemies of each other. They became snitches and uh, pariahs of each other and um, hurt each other. Neighbors standing next to neighbor across the wall, looking at ways that they could make reports on their neighbor and, and, and cause serious, serious problems. I think, I think it's going to take a decade when this is over, for, for this to heal and for people to heal and, um, and for things to get back to the way it, it was, if, if ever that could, because, because a lot of wrong was done to each other. And um, I think right now, um, I look at the public health people at the federal level in Canada, at the provincial level and at the local city levels as illogical, unsung, unscientific, Absurd. Most of what they've done, they did over the year, particularly the federal level, made no sense. They talk junk science. They're not even informed by science. 
And no one, the press doesn't ask them in Canada, okay, Ms. Dr. Nuke, where's the data to support what you just said? Tell us, show us the science. Dr. Tam, show us the evidence. You just said something there, but where's the evidence? Let us see it. Let us validate it. Let's compare it to something. These people think they can just go on the podium and make statements that, that are absolutely not grounded in science. It's not evidence-based. And they impose restrictions on the society that are so draconian. I could argue that the, 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 the harms and the deaths that we saw in America, I could argue probably occurred in Canada. The media is not being um, forthcoming. The media has not explained the burden and the pain that Canadians have suffered, especially the poor in the society, the, the, the underprivileged in society, women in the society, always the burden gets shifted to them, always. They're the ones that suffer the most at the end of this. So the reality about it is that this became, I think if this pandemic did not occur in the election year last year, and it's not even a pandemic. Look, we are talking to each other and I'm a human being, so I, I am entitled and I'm allowed my point of view. My point of view is this was never a pandemic. This, this was a, this was an emergency or let's say a heavy flu-like year, we'd have looked back at it as such. But this was not the emergency that they made it out to be. We did not need to lock the world down as we did. We did not need to lock schools down. We suffered our children. We suffered them. Uh, estimates are it will take decades for them to get back on stream uh, as to the, the losses that they incurred. Um, uh, academically, maturationally, socially, because of the problems in school. Um, I, I think teachers are being very disingenuous in the United States, in Canada, wherever, because they're in a very low-risk situation. The data is clear that children do not spread for teachers. Ch children have more risk from, from teachers, and they're using this Delta variant as a, um, as a means to rescare or to hysterically push parents to vaccinate their children. But when we look at all of the data in the UK and Israel, we even look at data in the United States, the data that has accumulated thus far shows us that the Delta variant, while, while, it's, while it's infectious, it's non-lethal. It's, 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 it's not what the news is making it out to be. In fact, it appears to be the mildest variant of all of the variants thus far. And the way it's going, it will become milder than, a, than the common cold even. So when these people come on the news and make their statements and make their new policies, they don't have any evidence to back up. And the evidence that exists, they don't, they don't turn to. So when the, the dictum recently was the unvaccinated uh, driving the infections and driving the variants, when we look at the data, that's a complete lie. That's a complete lie. When you look at the, 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 the new infections in uh, Israel, et cetera, England, it's a 50-50. And actually, the persons who ended up in, in the hospitals and actually more severe outcomes, if you look at the British data from Delta, are the vaccinated. It's not the unvaccinated. So, so, so the, 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 nothing makes sense in what these people are saying. And, and it's constantly an effort to mislead and deceive the public. And the reality is, I think Canadians, I, I've realized you can't discuss this 
with Canadians as to how you would discuss with British people or French people, even Americans. Because I think the Canadian population right now, um, they're almost in a trance and they're almost allowing the government to do anything that they want to do the government. And if the government tells you to wear 75 masks, they will wear 75 masks. And uh, that's the problem because, because none of it makes sense. It's not grounded in any science. Yeah, that's it's a uh, a surprising state of affair where we arrive to in Canada, um, and yes. it's, especially amongst the what I will define as peer pressure to get the vaccine. Um, here, here in Kelowna, um, you know, we're seeing uh, amongst the young people almost a, a, a blind acceptance towards the vaccine, um, and parents pushing their youngsters. Uh, we have the West Kelowna Hockey Association. Uh, with with children as young as 14 that have been mandated. If you want to be on the ice in the arena, you must be vaccinated. Now, I've had several parents contact me um, up in arms and, and very fearful of this. And, you know, my response to them is simply, if that's the mandate, take your child out of that sport. I mean, that's that's ludicrous. And I would also serve them with a notice of liability that your actions could be extremely detrimental to my child. And should you continue to uh, insist upon these, uh, you know, there may be legal action. And and I think, interestingly enough, of course, uh, the United States of America is much more litigious than we are here in Canada. But in many ways, that's a useful aspect of society because in Canada, the courts have been completely silent. I mean, in Europe, we have a number of very good rulings now. Uh, in, and in America, there's a number of, of uh, cases before the courts which may effectively rationalize some of this uh, rhetoric. And in Canada, it, we, it very is, seems to be completely quiet. Well, the thing about it, Martins, is this. I've told my wife and some, some of my friends recently, I said, you know, Sadly, sadly, in a place like Canada, it's going to take one or two children, young children being vaccinated and dying for the mothers of Canada. It's the mothers of Canada, I think, is going to save Canada in this madness, because it is madness. Because, yes. because here, here's how you have to look at it. <clears throat> if children are at such low risk of illness or of death, or of spreading this virus, etc., if this is the data, and the vaccine is still investigational. It is an experimental uh, platform, etc. This so-called vaccine. Yes. If risk is so low, and there is a potential for harms with this vaccine, how how could you, as a parent, do a risk management uh, analysis, a risk benefit analysis, and come up with a decision to vaccinate my child? You know, you are seeing. You are seeing all of these reports from Israel, UK, even the United States in Massachusetts, where all of these breakthrough infections. So I, I, I'm trying to understand Dr. Nu and Dr. Tan. Let me see if I could model them in my head here. Let's, let's clear a little bit. Dr. Nu, okay. Today I woke up and I saw news reports in UK, news reports in England, news reports uh, in um, Israel, breakthrough infections. So the vaccine isn't working. So that's clear. No, nobody's even arguing that now. They, because now they're trying to push you for boosters because the second shot just didn't work. So by their own request now, they're saying it's a, it has failed. Okay. So Dr. New is seeing this. 
Then he's also seeing, because I'm sure he reads some side, he's seeing the DeVere's database, the CDC's own reporting database, which captures 1% of the reporting, says, as of this morning, there are 600,000, 600,000 adverse events. Many of them are severe adverse events, and there are about 13,000 registered deaths. Deaths that occurred one to two to three days post-shot. How does Dr. Nu or Dr. Tam go from or Dr. Davila or whatever? I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name correctly. How does how do they go from hmm, breakthrough infections, vaccine doesn't work, lots of deaths when you get the vaccine to let's vaccinate the public? I don't understand that. I don't understand how they take what is there known to arrive at the next conclusion. So we will respond to that by vaccinating you with the same failed problematic vaccines. And, and we want to do that to your children who have almost statistical zero risk. So it makes no sense. I do not understand what Canadians are thinking now and what they are doing. I would say this. I'm a Canadian citizen. Um, I have expertise in the area. I work daily. I deal with the top scientists across the world. I am not working in a bureaucratic position right now. We are dealing with pure science. We're looking at the evidence. There is absolutely no reason, no evidence to support the administration of these vaccines in any children. Zero. Period. The argument cannot be made. And even in the United States, when you saw them administer the vaccine to the teenagers, what did you see as a result? Instances of pericarditis and myocarditis, so much so that the vaccine the developer had to put a warning on the label. And myocarditis is not a rare condition, as the CDC tried to say, or mild. From what I understand from speaking to cardiologists, it damages and scars the heart muscle, and it's the cardiac reserve that is lost that in 20 to 30 years down the line, when your 15-year-old son today, you think is fine, had a little bout of myocarditis, when they're, when they're 45 and 50, they could suddenly drop dead. Their heart would stop. So these are the kind of conversations we have to have that Dr. Nu and Dr. Tam is not having with the public. They're not informing the public of the risks. That's the key here. The public is being bullshitted. I'll be blunt. I'm a scientist, but I'm angry. Yes, sir. And I would also say, you know, where is the FDA and the CDC? Where is their response to the VAERS data? Um, you know, given the fact that we have this uh, incredible number of deaths and injuries, these this experimental use authorization should should it should be halted immediately, if not months ago already. And and any other drug program where we saw this level of injury would have been stopped. Would you agree? Absolutely, sir. Because, because in 1976, 1977, there was a swine flu pandemic, and the United States, under President Ford, brought a vaccine. And I believe, if I remember correctly, I don't have the data in front of the paper, but uh, there were 45 million um, vaccinations, but there were about 25 to 50 deaths. Yes. And that, that, those 50 deaths caused President Trump, President Ford, to pull the program and stop it. They stopped it. And that became kind of a benchmark for us, a threshold across the last decades, where if a drug or vaccine uh, gets to that levels of, of deaths, 
that could be linked to the, to the product, temporarily, biological, plausibility, etc. you would stop it. Now we have tens of thousands of deaths, and they have not. The FDA has not. So it leads you to think something other than science must be at play here, because it does not make sense based on the science and the evidence and the data that has accumulated. They, they, yes. they, they, it, it just doesn't make any sense what they're doing. And again, coming back to the children, a parent must ask themselves this. If the vaccine offers my child no benefit, only possible harms, when you look at it as a benefit-risk benefit uh, equation, why would you, how could you arrive at the decision? Is it because your neighbor vaccinated their child? Is it because it's the hip thing to do now? Is it because the media is pushing you and coercing you? No, I am saying you need to stop and think this through properly. Think about your child. You are setting your child up potentially if this vaccine does not work with them for a lifetime of disability and potential death. You, you as a parent, because you are the decision maker. And you can't turn around and say, society pushed me, or Dr. New told me, or Dr. Tam said it's okay, or, or the prime minister. No, the decision making is yours. You need to think about what is best for your child. Similar to the issue with masks. There is absolutely no evidence, none, zero across this world, entire world. We looked at all of the data that supports masking any child in school, none. Masks are actually very harmful to children. So I ask parents, why would you send your child to school? Why would you not force the unions, force the schools, force the governments to understand the risk to your children and understand that the mask is providing no benefit it, it damages children socially, emotionally, and health-wise. It confers no benefits, yet harms. We know from, from science and evidence that the carbon dioxide buildup behind the masks, the, 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 the hypoxia due to the, the lack of oxygen coming in because of the mask. So I, I, I just don't understand the, 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 the ease at which Canadians just go along with these things. I just can't get it. I can't understand parents who are not out there protesting. And who, listen, it is again. I, 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 it hurts me to say. It. I told my wife. I said, if they continue with these vaccines, because adults have died, it will take one or two deaths of young children, ordinarily healthy children, whose parents agreed to give them the shot out of the scare and the hysteria they are seeing, which is bogus, they gave them the shot and their child died. It will take one or two of those, sadly, sadly, for the mothers of Canada to stand up and say, stop, enough is enough. This is bogus, junk, garbage. And, you know, I fear, however, uh, Dr. Alexander, that even if that happens, given the censorship towards the medical community, both, you know, doctors, scientists, and nurses, that some of that information may be suppressed. And of course, you know, the, the Communist Broadcasting Corporation does its best to continue to perpetrate the official narrative. Um, what are your, th I mean, you, you I, I believe that you were dismissed from McMaster for, for voicing your opinion. I mean, we, we've entered this, this uh, strange new time where as a, as a licensed medical professional, you are not able to publicly state your opinion for fear of censure or, or canceling. Uh, you know, what are your thoughts there? Well, well, 
But listen, as an academic scientist, let me tell you, um, I did my doctoral degree under Dr. Gordon Guyatt. <clears throat> Dr. Gordon Guyatt with Dr. Sackett, uh, the founders of evidence-based medicine, that term, evidence-based medicine, that field, they're the giants in evidence-based medicine. I was fortunate that my PhD and my postdoc was with him. I remain personal friends with Dr. Guyatt from McMaster. I go and I have dinner with him and have a glass of wine every now and again with him in a, in a restaurant somewhere, one-on-one. -on -one. We are that close. But um, uh, as an assistant professor, your academic appointment comes up every two, every three to four years, and you have to renew the appointment. Everyone, everyone in university. And uh, uh, when minds came up, which was a normal, seamless process, is more submitting a signed document that you, you want to continue on strength, um, teaching whenever, etc. It was not renewed, and it and 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 it was told to me by two persons in academia at McMaster as staff, as professors, and one in the executive office. Because, I mean, across the years, you know, I did a lot. I helped a lot. I, I was on the admissions committee for the master's students for the epidemiology programs. They asked me to help assess the incoming students, etc. So, so I found ways to give back to the university because I love McMaster. I appreciate McMaster and Hamilton um, and a lot of people I met there. But these high-level people, professors and executives, told me, Paul, you, you need to understand something. You ruffled and you, you, you angered a lot of people by your work with Trump and your advocacy for early outpatient treatment, particularly your stance on the vaccine with, with kids. And, and I just couldn't understand that because we are the home of evidence-based medicine. <laughs> and if you talk, you know, if you're talking about evidence, so what has happened now is these doctors and these scientists who are evidence-based specialists, they've gone silent and they've joined the pharmaceuticals and they've joined the crazy media and they've joined whatever dark forces are because because Martin's the bottom line is this there is no science to back up what we are doing right now. There's no science to back it up. If the society enters into a new lockdown in Ontario. There will be no science to back it up. There'll be no science. There is no science to back up the mass, to, to, to back up, to back up everything that was done. So, so I, I, I've asked them, I've asked my friends why, and I'll, and I'll be blunt with you about something. Many of them at NIH in the United States, I, I do, I do to have many friends at CDC at high levels and um, people at McMaster and University of Toronto, because I did graduate school there too. They told me confidentially that they know that what is coming out of the NIH and the CDC and uh, public health agency is junk, is garbage. They know, but they can't say anything because their grants, the next, many of these academics, you know this, they survive on writing grant applications. When I call my friends to say, hey, let's go and grab a beer. Paul, I can't write now. I have to, I have to put together this grant. My, my director's down my throat. Anytime you speak to them, they're writing a grant. Now, if you threaten that grant in any way, or the universities, because the universities get credit for the grant application that they win. So a lot of this is, a lot of pressure has gone on to people to silence them. And I have worked, <clears throat> I'm working in this group, this high level scientific group 
with people like uh, Dr. Mark Trozzi, Dr. Christian Francis, uh, Dr. Dr. Hoff uh, in Canada, did a lot of seminal work on the issues of detecting a lot of micro blood clotting post-vaccine with his D-dimer testing, et cetera. So I work with these people and we discuss the highest level of science, constantly trying to understand what's happening here. And these people have been smeared, slandered. Dr. Brian Brittle out of University of Guelph, his seminal work on the, on, on the spike itself, absent of the viral ball, is an endothelial pathogen. It, it damages the vasculature of, of the, the blood vessels, the capillaries, the arteries, etc. And it causes clotting, it causes bleeding in women, etc. He has been pilloried by, by the Canadian press. I mean, I asked the press, why? This guy has been an academic. He's been a top-level scientist all his life. He's given so much to advance medicine. Why would you destroy a, destroy a man? He's a husband. He's a father. He's a good man. Why would you destroy Dr. Francis? Why? Because, because they are trying to tell you, give you information that could probably save lives. I mean, it makes, that's what Canada has, Canada has hurt me personally because I can't understand what they've done. So where is this message coming from then, Dr. Alexander? I mean, we, we're, we're kind of speaking about, there's obviously control of the narrative for a specific purpose, which seems to either be for profit or for, or for uh, you know, let's, uh, you know, as, as Dr. Michael Yaden and others have said, this is potentially a bioweapon for depopulation. So, I mean, at, at, at worst case, uh, or sorry, best case, this is a profit-driven motive by the pharmaceutical companies that have, through their lobbying and their, their infiltration of the public health agencies, have pushed this on an unsuspecting population. And at worst, there's something more nefarious going on here. Yes, well, well, the thing about it is I know Dr. Yeadon also. I think he's a, one of the most brilliant people I've ever spoken to. Um, to be honest with you, I think a lot of, a lot more, more investigation needs to take place to try and figure out the antecedent of this. And um, exactly what, I want to answer that part this way. Exactly if this was a nefarious action, who was involved and why? But I'll tell it to you this way. <clears throat> from my own biological, because I did a small stint at Johns Hopkins in 2001 of, under Dr. Donald Henderson. Um, he, he eradicated smallpox um, in bioterrorism because I was just interested. At that point, there was a lot of discussion in the United States and the world about bad actors looking at um, developing things like um, uh, suitcase nuclear weapons very small miniaturized nuclearized devices and stuff. So that fascinated me in the sense that um, bad people will go that far to harm good societies. And uh, because I was an epidemiologist out of grad school, I wanted to learn further. And Johns Hopkins had started this program on how you could weaponize uh, plague, smallpox, anthrax, Q fever, tularemia, the whole list of them. And uh, I just found it fascinating that you could take pathogen and you could powderize it and you could put it on a missile, you could deliver it into a city. So, so I went to, and I did that program and I remained in contact with a lot of these people over the decades. And um, so I developed my own learning from Johns Hopkins, but my own self-thinking. Here's what I'll tell you. I think that 
if a society wanted to damage the United States or another country, and um, they wanted to grind its economy to a halt, not necessarily kill people, but, but incapacitate it. And um, you have the capacity to weaponize pathogen today, and you can, and you have developed, you've done all of these different research gain of function, you've found a way to, 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 to juice up the infectivity of these viruses, etc. Um, you could technically use your people as, as a delivery system. And you could infect your people and deliver them into another society and bring it to its knees. So I am not saying that that's what happened in the United States, but I am saying that's one model. And that must be investigated. It has to be investigated to see who did what, who knew what, who benefited, who profited. Because that's a very, very serious, the kind of statements and discussions bandied around right now are very, very serious. Yes. Very, very. serious. Very. Um, the, issue, the issue about profit, clearly right now, a lot of people are making obscene, bad, dirty money. They are benefiting and profiting out of the suffering of societies. Um, so these pharmaceutical companies are bringing to us a non-needed vaccine. They have denied the use. They have conspired and worked with regulatory agencies to deny the use of successful, cheap, effective, safe drugs that could have arrested this a year ago and stopped all of these deaths. You know, all of these are antivirals and stuff that once administered within that first two-week window when the virus is at its peak replication. So, so they, they are in a, let's say that they are in a business but their business is now uh, they, to, to enact what they're doing, to get you to take a, a vaccine that is not needed. They have to scare you to the point where you're going to stop your life. You're going to accept the lockdown. You're going to live this kind of zombie type of life. And, and they have drilled in your head that the only way out of this is with a vaccine and a vaccine that does not work and a vaccine that was not properly tested. I mean, how could you tell me that we need 10 to 12 to 15 years to properly test a vaccine, particularly for safety, and you brought it to us in three months? How could you tell me that I understand how this vaccine works long term for safety? You absolutely cannot. And the FDA knew this. That's why in the submissions, they, 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 they precluded, they precluded uh, Persons with COVID infection who recovered, suspected COVID recovered people, they precluded pregnant women, they precluded women of childbearing age, etc., because they knew that putting these vaccines into these people untested, etc., was potentially very dangerous. Yet we're turning around as a society and vaccinating these people. You never vaccinate a group that was never part of the trial in the first place. And you never, you never give a pregnant woman a biological active, biologically active agent that is untested. You never ever do something like that. It is such a precious entity, an expectant mother and the developing child in womb that you could cause so much damage to the, to the, to, to the, to the woman and to the baby in utero. So, I mean, uh, they, there's so many questions, right? Dr. Yeden recently has been bringing up the point about um, thalidomide 
which which he was which was yes if you remember uh, if you go back and read in the 1960s uh it, it caused this condition called focomelia where children were born with just limb buds and we were able to see that at very specific points uh in the in the development of the baby that that, that the telenomide worked as a teratogen and uh, depending on when you administered it uh, by almost the day you could get brain damage you could get heart damage you could get the arms would be, the kid would be born without arms uh, if you delivered on a certain day you could get no limbs so so these things are potentially catastrophic so why would you uh, expose a pregnant woman to this when you do not have the best study the CDC has right now is one where they did a study, and I think there was two to three months follow-up. But but pregnancy is nine months. So how could you really see how these vaccines operate on a pregnant woman and also the outcome for the baby? So everything here, sir, is upside down and wrong side. And all these government agencies, particularly Public Health Agency of Canada, uh, the Provincial Health Agency, they're just pushing, 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 vaccinating, but they're not making the case to the public as to why. And they're not informing the public that with other proper, reasonable precautions, we could deal with this pathogen absent of this vaccine. This vaccine, I, I, will, I will say it this way. I am 100% against the use of these vaccines. 100%. I might have worked in HHS under President Trump, but I'm 100% against. And before I would argue, you know, maybe we should reserve it for just persons over 75 who are high risk with some medical conditions. But we know of many people who are as old as 80, 90, with underlying conditions, who survived COVID with early treatment. So we know this. So, so why subject people who, why subject an 80-year-old person to a vaccine that this person has lived their whole life successfully, you know, they're elderly, they just want to live the rest of their life peacefully and without any harms and, and enjoy seeing their family, etc. Why subject them to this vaccine? What 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 is the I mean, what is really the benefit? And 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 I have to agree with you in the sense that there are there are forces at play here that because scientifically it doesn't make sense. We need to get to the bottom of it. And that may take some more time. But right now, we have more urgency. And the urgency is we need to keep these vaccines out of our children's reach. We need, I would also argue, we need to prevent children from being masked to go to school because it is not beneficial and it can only be harmful. There's no benefit. These masks, children do not spread this virus. Children just do not spread it. And children do not get it. And children do not get very sick from it and i'm talking about statistical zero we will never say zero because because every year in your life you may hear of one or two instances of a child in canada who died of the common cold and that's just life that is something that happens very tragic but that is life and you can't shut the society down and and and, and grind everything to a halt for a COVID zero existence that can never happen this virus has an animal reservoir. It will always be with us, always. Yes, yes. And then what do you what do you make of some of the more recent information coming out 
on the vaccines with the graphene oxide content. Um, the work of Karen Kingston, a former Pfizer employee, uh, she she has detailed uh, the ingredients going back to Sinopeg in, in China. And, you know, clearly, uh, just as mercury and aluminum have had damaging consequences in uh, the uh, previous vaccines, could this simply be uh, an adjuvant that's in there or or a residue from manufacturing process? What is your take on that? Well, to, to be honest with you, those reports uh, have been very disturbing and we are looking at the evidence. The, the reality is graphene has been reported in some of these blue surgical masks, et cetera, and yes. the toxic side effects of them. People don't understand just from a mask, I will get back to the vaccine, but from a mask point of view, you are breeding a lot of the fibers and stuff and toxic stuff from the mass that is accumulating over time in your deep, deep lung tissue. It's going to be very, very problematic for you as adults also. More importantly, by masking children, by locking them down and by closing schools, we are denying their normal, functional, innate immune system, which yes, needs yes. to be up and taxed every day. We're denying yes. them that ability. And we are taking healthy, well children in our society, and we are weakening their immune system. So when they do go back out fully, they will become susceptible to a lot of benign, ordinarily benign infections out there that will not be a problem for them. The immune system just can't cope with it anymore. The immune system, if it's not tuned up and taxed on a near daily basis, uh, it will become, it will go offline and become very dysfunctional. But the issue about the, the vaccine, the reality about it, Martins, is I'll answer it this way. What she's asking is a simple question. If we are finding these chemicals in the mass that are potentially dangerous, and they are dangerous normally, we at a point, we cannot exclude the harms from them because we did not study it. And that's the key. That's the purpose of a clinical trial. A clinical trial runs for the duration it does so that at the end, we can exclude the possibility of harms or death from particular ingredients or particular functioning of that drug or vaccine. In this case, we have vaccines that we've brought to market after three to four months. We've not done the necessary surveillance follow-up where we could rightfully exclude harms. So if the question is about graphene oxide, if you ask me, do you think that this has a potential deleterious effect? I cannot tell you no, and I cannot tell you yes. Why? Because we have not studied it. And this is a very dangerous place to be. Because if this is a dangerous chemical normally in toxic levels, but we've not studied it, maybe if we'd have studied the vaccine long term, we'd have found that this chemical working in this vaccine has more of a structural component and not a functional one. It may be benign. But we cannot say that because we've not studied it. And that's the problem. And, and, and I don't want to be on the side of somebody just guessing. If this is a toxic chemical normally, and you put it in there, unless you could show me that you've proven it does not cause harm, I am going to assume it is harmful. Yeah, yeah that, that's a good statement. And then from your scientific knowledge, when I learned that there's 40 trillion lipid nanoparticles, each containing a spike uh, protein mRNA sequence, that to me seems much greater than what the viral load in an infection would be. Am I correct in that assumption or, or am, I, am I wrong? 
Well, the thing about it is that um, that one virus produces millions and billions of, of daughter um, cells during its replication. So these things are so small that that having loads of billions, you might think, well, where is this all going to fit, etc. No, actually, uh, it, it, it is at that numerical value. The issue here, though, the real issue is because we've not done the pharmacodynamic studies, the pharmacokinetic studies, we do not know, or the, the, the reproductive toxicity studies, we do not know where these spikes go. We do not know for how long they remain there. We do not know for how long they are expressed, etc. And that's the issue. The issue is that everything that the, that the pharmaceutical companies told us is turning out to be not true. So, so all of a sudden, we get these data from like people like Dr. Brittle, who showed us that the lipid nanoparticles accumulate, bioaccumulate in tissues uh, in the animal model. And uh, there's a very problematic, the ovaries, the testes, the adrenals, etc. We also have the Ogata study, the Japan study, where they looked at the healthcare workers and um, they found that in 11 of 13 of them, the spike protein, actually, the translated spike protein was turning up in the blood 15 days post-vaccine and was showing up actually one day post-vaccine. And there was one of them where it showed up 29 days post-vaccine. So the question is, normally, like mRNA gets degraded in the cells in the cytoplasm by these enzymes called uh, mRNA acids. But so... We know normally how these things should work, but in this case, the, 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 the developers of the vaccine and the FDA, they have been very cryptic in what they have given to us to understand what, what has been done, what is involved, how this works, how that works. So we just do not know. And now that you have been administering the vaccine, we are seeing 600,000 adverse events in the U.S. VAERS database. So something is wrong. And I think I want to bring this back to Canada. I would like to ask you, <clears throat> where do you think we are? Because I cannot seem to find the surveillance reporting in Canada that, that, that accumulates and brings together the adverse reports and the deaths post-vaccine in Canada. Where is this? This is what Canadians need to be clamoring for. They need to be shouting at new and Tam. And the Prime Minister, where is the Data Safety Monitoring Board post-vaccine? Where's the Ethics Review Committee? Where's the Critical Event Committee? We need the data. We need to see how these vaccines are behaving in Canada. You are withholding that information from us. Yes, yes, very much so. <clears throat> well, that's the, the of course, it, it seems to be that that information is being uh, either misrepresented or obscured here in Canada. Uh, and I, I wonder if you've seen the recent um, autopsy reports from Dr. Ryan Cole, uh, where he was looking at uh, those who died post-vax, and essentially every single organ system has damage, uh, which can be attributed to the spike protein. Have, have you seen that, uh, that study? Uh, no, I have not seen that study, but I know Dr. Ryan Cole is a very big, um, uh, I think his area of expertise is in pathology. Correct. And, yes. Uh, yes. And um, I, I wouldn't deny, I wouldn't doubt 
uh, uh, what you're saying here and what the findings were. Because the reality about it is that <clears throat> what we found in that um, biodistribution study, and not just the study that Brittle had, had um, manifested the FDA, um, the Pfizer um, bio, biodistribution study that was done, the Japanese study. There are other studies now that are being produced and other research that you could find that shows that the spike protein on its own, even without the virus or as part of the virus, or as a pseudoviron, et cetera, the spike protein is, is, is a devastating part of it. In fact, we know more clearly now that the spike protein is the damaging part of it. It isn't just used to get into the cell so that the virus can replicate. The spike protein actually damages the, the, the vasculature. It binds to the ACE2 receptor. It causes a lot of inflammation and subsequent damage. And um, the reality about it is that uh, uh, everything that the, that the vaccine developers said to us is turning out not to be true, particularly from the point of view that we're finding out now about 75% of the vaccine leaves the lymph drainage node area uh, in the arm and enters into the circulation systemically. And um, the reality about it is that we did not study it. So we don't know normally what happens. We are going now in these studies that we are doing. So what we really want is the FDA, et cetera, to commission these urgent studies to answer these questions as to what exactly is happening. And we are having these people who are being vaccinated now, and we're getting a lot of reports around issues around potential viral shedding, women having irregular postmenopausal bleeding, and all sorts of stuff when they come into contact with persons who've been vaccinated. So, again, all of these things were not studied, and these things should have been studied. So, it raises a lot of questions as to why and what is being withheld from the public. Um, how, how could you bring a vaccine? where by the looks of it now, with the failures that we are seeing, you are probably looking to go and ask Canadians to take a booster shot every six months, because that's what they're talking about now in the United States. So that's what was told in the beginning. We went from bending the curve, give us two weeks to bend the curve in March. to now we're in the end of August of 2021. We are way past that now. You're gonna lock us down again. You're gonna impose all of these crazy nonsensical unscientific policies, but you've brought for us a vaccine that is showing us that it's not working, it was not needed, and it's actually unsafe. So it's a it's like a crazy time and world that we're living in. And and none of these these so-called experts at the head of these task forces like the um the CDC or the public health agency, they just come on the television and they just utter a bunch of stuff to you. They don't explain things properly, they don't explain to the public the, the scientific underpinning. They just tell you what they want to tell you and you need to go away with that. Yeah. Just trust them, trust them. Right? And everything they've done so far is wrong. Has been wrong, but trust us. I mean, 85 to 90% of the deaths I've read in Canada occurred in nursing homes. Yes. In nursing homes. How did they allow, it was like the killing fields in the nursing homes in Canada. How did they allow that to happen? See. That is something that needs to be investigated and people need to be held accountable for that because many, many people's parents and family died needlessly, painfully, painfully there. 
Yes, yes, I agree. So what what is the message then to Canadians? How do how do we get Canadians to to snap out of this collective trance that they've been put into by the the, the mainstream media and the narrative that of fear and uh, you know what can we do to to help these people snap out of that situation and, and begin to to understand what's really going on here? Well, I think it has to do with the initial messaging that came out in the United States because. Again, the United States leads the world and sets the tone and everyone else follows. If the United States, I argue, did not lock down when they did in March, etc., the rest of the world would not have eventually. Those who were thinking about it would have stopped, not. They would have followed America's lead. So America really teetered the world into this disaster that we're in. And it is America maybe they're going to have to lead us out. Um, so the initial messaging, which was we are all at equal risk of severe illness if infected. That was wrong. And that message has to change coming all the way from the top. That message has to go out to the public that we could use and we must use a focused age-targeted approach, age-risk-targeted approach. Not everyone is at equal risk. And we will focus our, our um, mitigation and our um, approach to the highest risk persons in society. I think the message has to go out, that message, because it's been 18 months of drilling that fake, false message into the heads of people. So now everybody feels, even down to a little child, that they are at risk and that they could cause somebody else to be at risk. So they are very, very fearful. And, and a lot, it is clear now that a very coordinated, distasteful, um, messaging campaign went out to really mess with the minds of the public, particularly the Canadian public, and they have probably have they fallen for it. Canadians need to understand some simple basic facts that <clears throat> this virus has an infection fatality rate of 0.14, which is at or even lower than seasonal influenza, and that's for the general ages. If you go down to 70 years and below, and you, you pull that section of the population, the world's population out, the infection fatality rate is about 0.04%. So Canadians need to understand that, <clears throat> this is how I look at it. Every night that you went to bed before, before they brought this COVID to you, they would have these black vehicles or white vehicles kind of, um, type vehicles would pull up at the back of old age homes and would pick up elderly people who passed away because they're elderly. They're in the, uh, the old age homes and nursing homes. <clears throat> they are vulnerable because they live a long life, 85, 90, etc. They probably had some underlying medical conditions and they passed away as a consequence of living. We didn't get them to the hospital in time. Maybe some of them got to the hospital, got some treatment. They all struggle with respiratory illnesses, viral illnesses, pneumonia, seasonal influenza, year over year, always. And as a society, for in, a, in America's example, <clears throat> Americans learn to live with 60 to 70,000 deaths a year from seasonal influenza. And there are 450,000 infections a day, seasonal influenza in the United States, every single day. America records about 70 million 
seasonal influenza infections a year. So when you understand all of those numbers that the news media never put out to you, it made you realize that, so you mean I get, so many people get influenza infections every day? Yeah. When you walk outside, Martins, today, you will probably bump up against 1,000 different viruses. When you sit down in your car, you drive home, you go to the, to the uh, fast food outlet, pick up some food, go to the mall. During our normal day, we are confronted with so many pathogens that our innate immune system, our mucosal immune system is so effective. So we're healthy. It will deal with it, vanquish it. We will never even know that we confronted something and we go about our lives. And that's how we have to live life as free, healthy people. And I think <clears throat> when you put COVID in perspective, you get to realize that, that, that they took uh, an infection where, to me, knowing what I know today, <clears throat> the public health messaging should have been somebody in the top of society. Let's say it was a Howard New from Public Health Agency or Theresa Tam or whomever should have come to the society in February, March of 2020 and say, look, we've heard about this thing coming out of China. We are tracking it. We see there were some deaths in Italy. And um, the problem is the Canadian population has a lot of elderly at-risk people. So we need to take care of them. And um, we might have to put up pause on things for a couple of weeks to properly understand the parameters of this, this pathogen. But once we figure that out quickly, society could go back to normal functioning. But what we will do is we will safely secure our elderly in nursing homes. And what that will entail is we will stop staff and people from the outside from going inside and infecting them. We will implement proper outbreak, uh, outbreak infection control measures, which we did not. That is why the 85% of deaths occurred in our nursing homes. The nursing homes in Canada failed to stop the staff from entering and infecting. Every single staff member, every single infection outbreak that occurred in a home. I had two in-laws at two separate old age homes in Canada, and they both were infected when we got notice that staff brought it in from outside. So now we have to lock the home down and, and we have to start testing and everybody have to go into their room for the next two months and live a life of hell. They don't even get showered and bathed. So we knew. Worse than jail. Yes, it was terrible what these, our elderly went through. And again, city level, provincial level, and federal level, we must find who was involved, who knew about this, whose job it was to secure this, and hold them to account. We have to, so that this does not happen again. So, again, they should have come to the public and say, we're going to safeguard our elderly, but... We also know of things like really outpatient treatment. We're going to treat this virus like if we're dealing with a very bad influenza year. And we're going to let society go on as normal. Because the reason why I'm telling you this is this. Dr. Donald Henderson, who eradicated smallpox, he was the head of the, the program uh, coming out of he was at CDC and Johns Hopkins in the past. And as I said, I did a little bit of biological warfare work with him. I, I grew to meet him. He lectured in that program, and I, and I kept in contact with him. 
I actually asked him to do my doctoral, to be my thesis supervisor in Johns Hopkins. But uh, for funding arrangements, I went on to McMaster with Dr. Guyatt. But anyway, he wrote a seminal paper in 2006 on mitigation steps in a pandemic. And he has been regarded globally always as the guru or the father of pandemic responding. And he wrote clearly, clearly that when a society is faced with a pandemic, that you do not want to implement draconian lockdown measures, school closures, all of these measures, you should do as least as possible to touch the society. You let the society operate as normal as possible. You don't disrupt the society. And there are certain things that would be mainstream, and the two of them are, one, improved hand washing, and two, you only isolate or test symptomatic unwell people. You never ever isolate or quarantine asymptomatic people. You do not do that at the port of entry. You do not do that at the airport. You just do not. You do not mass test asymptomatic people. People who get tested are people who there's a strong clinical suspicion. You have symptoms, etc. People who should be isolated are people who there's a strong clinical suspicion that, and you have symptoms, but you do not mass test or isolate the general public, the asymptomatic public. That is catastrophic, he said. Catastrophic. Even the WHO were on the same page in 2019, and they issued their own pandemic guidelines, and it seems that they shelved it, and the world shelved it. We knew how to operate here and we knew what to do, but we did everything in the opposite. And that's why when you talk and I talk and others, we have to ask ourselves, are other factors, were other factors other than science at play here? Because it makes no sense what they have done. Absolutely no sense. They cannot defend what they have done. Cannot, zero. And that's the issue. I agree. I agree. Now, you've also been outspoken enough to publicly state that America has an obesity problem. And obviously, yes. this is related to the general health epidemic, which is present in that country. And of course, yes. to, obesity is a major comorbidity factor for uh, COVID. Yet, there hasn't been a single message from any public health agency encouraging the obese population to take measures to reduce their high BMI numbers. And I would furthermore say that this uh, in this instance in history for humanity should bear witness to all of us that we are responsible for our own health and well-being and that we cannot rely solely on the prescription pad of doctors. Your thoughts there? Well, well so you probably I mean it's brilliant how you explain things and hit the nail on the head. The reality about it is if you and me as professionals and as adults, we want to have a serious conversation because we want to fix this. We need to start by saying COVID-19 COVID as a virus, the virus SARS-CoV-2, has shown us that it's a disease of disparity and it's a disease that exploits your risk factors. And we looked at the data and we found that obesity, severe obesity, emerged as a superloaded risk factor. Probably behind age is the second highest risk factor. I mean, COVID is an age stratified illness, hands down. Um, those are the extremes of age, the elderly are the ones at greatest risk. 
especially if you have underlying medical conditions. But behind age, in fact, COVID will give way age to obesity. So if you show me a 40-year-old who's morbidly obese, that 40-year-old morbidly obese with no other medical conditions, but obese is at almost the same risk as an 80-year-old with three medical conditions. COVID gives way age to obesity. Obesity is such a powerful risk factor. What does it tell us? It tells us in the United States and Britain and Canada, and we are unhealthy societies. Let's be frank. We've lived very unhealthy lives. Not everyone, but you know who I'm talking about amongst us. We, 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 we need to get our act in order. We need to get our weight under control, and we need to live more healthier lives in terms of nutrition and sleep and, and exercise and all of these things. So, so COVID is a, a kind of how you're seeing. It's like a wake-up call. But, but, but here's the tragedy. The public health agencies in Canada, like public health agency under Tam and New and these people, uh, under Williams in the province, Christine Elliott and these people, under Davila or whoever, what, I, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing, I want to have respect for the lady, her, her name, this doctor. I think she heads Toronto response. These people have failed. They did not use the podium. They did not, they have squandered the opportunity to come to Canadians 18 months ago and say, look, we are seeing where obesity is a principal driver. We are seeing where the risk factors are. And have a conversation. Talk to people about this. Talk to people about the issue about vitamin D supplementation, particularly because Canada has so many brown population in like places like Vancouver, in Ontario. I mean, let's face it. I come from the islands too. The reality about it is if you don't have, and we live so much of the year indoors because of the winter, if you don't have proper sunlight, you cannot take the inactive form of vitamin D underneath your skin and turn it into the active, the, the form needed. But vitamin D is so critical to the immune response. There's core research now, COVID research is showing that when the T cells that are part of your immune system, when they, the T helper cells, the natural killer cells, etc., they put out antennae in search of vitamin D in, in the cell. And if vitamin D is not present, they, they normally exist in a naive form. They do not differentiate. They do not go on to be a, an optimal immune response. Vitamin D is critical, especially for colored persons. The public health agencies in Canada fail. They fail the colored community, the black Canadians, the brown Canadians. There's so many of us. They failed messaging properly. And we've had 18 months of this, and many people would have survived and been here had the messaging on weight control and on vitamin D supplementation been a constant public service message, including the United States, including. And this has to do with politics and taboo. And, well, I don't want to hurt their feelings, you know, because this is a vote issue. They may not vote for me. You see, we need to get all of this BS off the table and come to the table and talk honestly and truthfully to the people and give people honest information so they could be informed and they can make proper decisions. So tell people the vaccines have not been safety tested. Your children are not at risk. Give them that information and then let me as a parent sit back and say, okay, I found out now that the vaccine is untested. I've seen reports of safety issues. I know my child is not at risk. Hmm, what should I do? 
should I vaccinate or should I not? Well, all the signs said I should not vaccinate. But even if that parent says vaccinate, they have been informed. It's like no one right now is getting proper informed consent to take the vaccine. You just told, hey, roll up your sleeve and take that shot. You're not informed. No one is telling you the benefits or the risks. So they're violating the Nuremberg Code and they don't even realize this. Yes, yes. I mean, it's a fundamental tenant. I mean, it's, I think it's the first uh, first article of the Nuremberg Code that we are now in violation of. Uh, and, yes. I, and I'd like to just, just touch base on what you said about vitamin D, because we've had the dishonorable federal health minister, Patty Hadju, uh, when questioned in parliament on this subject by uh, the MP Derek Sloan, uh, she replied, and I quote, I would encourage the member not to fall prey to the myriad of fake news articles that are circulating around the internet in response to Derek Sloan's question as to why the health minister had not advocated the use of vitamin D. So again, when we have our public health officials that are either that misinformed or simply perpetrating a narrative which they've been directed to to administer to the public, we have a serious problem here. Yeah, I agree. I think the prime minister should fire her. Well, I think that the prime minister should fire himself. That would be the first step. <laughs> no, but no, but when you have that kind of mis that is misinformation. That's garbage. That's junk. She's the minister of health. She should know. So whoever's working for in Health Canada or public health agency, they're misinforming her and they've made her look like a fool. Because that's not the science. Any doctor, any doctor in Canada, any scientist knows the critical role of vitamin D in your immune response. So she's being illogical and absurd. Yes, yes. Well, sir, I know that you're pressed for time today, and I appreciate uh, your time. Uh, You've made a very passionate plea to Canadians, Americans, and people around the world. And I wish that people would start listening to uh, astute gentlemen like yourself, uh, rather than the the idiots on TV that are simply pandering a a false narrative uh, for what reason we have yet to determine um, and I hope that at some point in the future, those perpetrators of this narrative are held accountable for their actions. Yes, I, I hope so, because many, many, they have suffered their societies for 18 months, and many people have died. Collateral damage, not due to this COVID, due yes. to the policies, their, their policies that were all disastrous and failed. And, and I want to thank you, people like yourself, for being so brave for stepping out and, 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 and seeking to talk to as many people as possible. And um, because it's only people like yourself who's bringing the news out there. Because if we have to rely on the CNNs of this world and the CBC in Canada, etc., we will get this junk, garbage, fake, illogical junk. I don't know what other word to use for it. So thank you very much. We thank what? you. I appreciate that, sir. And, and uh, let's keep in touch. And I look forward let's to uh, getting... Yeah, getting back on the program. Yes, fantastic, okay. sir. You ha- you have a great day, and, and God bless you and your family, sir. Thank you. Same to you, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye.